Welcome to the YA Cafe, where we share conversations about books for teachers, readers, and caffeine addicts everywhere. On today's episode, we'll be talking about We Set the Dark on Fire by Taylor Mejia. Grab a mug of your favorite beverage, friends, and let's talk books. Have you tried the Radio Public app? It's a great app where you can find all of your favorite podcasts like this one. You'll experience the same great content for free and we'll receive a small kickback every time you listen there. This is a great way to support any podcast you enjoy. Come find us over on Radio Public. Welcome, y'all. As always, our first segment will be spoiler-free, and so you can stick around even if you haven't checked out the new novel yet. I'm Amanda Thrasher. And I'm Danielle Hall, an 8th and ninth grade English teacher, and I blog at teachnouvelle.com. And our guest today is YA writer Erin Callahan. Hey, Erin. Hello. I am so glad to be back. Are you, you mad are I didn't call you incomparable? You're incomparable. No, it's cool. We don't want to wear that out, Danielle, <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. So Thank you for having me. Yeah, anytime. And letting me pick a book. My goodness. You did pick this book. That's right. I hope you guys didn't hate it. Well, we'll talk no. about that. Just kidding. No, we liked it. What drew you to this book? How come you picked this one? I had seen it pop up on Twitter a number of times, and I was sort of intrigued by the possibility that it was a fictional world but not fantasy. Does that make sense? Yeah. We don't really see that that often. Usually when you have a fictional universe, there is something, you know, you're either like in space or there's magic. Right. And there's none of that here. It sort of resembles Latin America in maybe like the 1940s. Right. And it's not like a futuristic dystopian. Yes. Right. Although, you know, it is dystopian, but like, Wow, that's such an interesting observation. Thank you. (laughs) It's good to know you're earning your keep. (laughs) I try. So we got to talk to you in our December year-end roundup, and we got to catch up on your life since the publication of The Art of Escaping. And so hopefully our listeners are totally familiar with that book. If they're not, they should go order it right now because it's the best. Any new projects on the horizon? New projects on the horizon. Well, I'll mention two things. So one, these are not out yet, but my dear friend Troy H. Gardner and I are going to be doing recaps of Are You Afraid of the Dark that we are going to post. (gasps) Oh my God. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Okay. I have (laughs) like six questions. First of all, is Troy H. Gardner the one that was like your inspiration for Will in The Art of Escaping? Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that you know that. Yes, totally. Like, the dynamic with Troy that I had when we were in high school, and we're still very good friends. We're best friends. Uh, it's it's definitely the Maddie and Will dynamic to some extent. Yeah, even though we are not Maddie and Will, but that uh, the way they play off each other. Yes, I love it. Oh, <laughs> and then like okay, second question. I'm not actually going to ask six questions. I'm just going to ask okay. one more. What's your favorite? <laughs> are you afraid of the dark episode? Oh my goodness, this is a really good question. Um. I think my all-time fave, and maybe this will change when I rewatch them, but my all-time fave as of right now is the one that starred, and I'm going to blank on her name, Tatiana Ali. She was on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I don't anyway, remember this one. Okay. It was about this girl who was her, and then she encountered a ghost who looked just like her, but she was like a Quicksilver or something along those lines. So I didn't watch very much of that show 
uh, as a youngster because, as you can imagine, I was afraid of the dark. <laughs> oh, that's right. You don't like horror. I don't. I totally, but yes, I I'm going to watch that for you. <laughs> and then I'm going to read, you know, your thing. It's still in the works. We're getting there. But we'll, we'll, we'll probably post the first one on my blog within the next like couple of weeks, I would imagine. So awesome. Yeah. yeah. It should be fun. Yeah. We Set the Dark on Fire provides a dark vision of the island world of Medea, where a wall separates the prosperous inner region from the salted, barren earth of the outer island. Every young man of wealth and means negotiates for two wives, a Primera, who is to be his ambitious, intellectual equal, and a Segunda, who will be the lovely and beautiful opposite of everything he is. Daniela has trained as a Primera in Medea and is set to marry an influential politician's son. When a rebel organization discovers her biggest secret, she must agree to be a spy in her new household or lose everything she's worked for. Can Danny keep her grip on the life she's always wanted, or will the spiderweb of Medea claim another victim? Dun, dun, dun. Intense. So, Danielle, what did you think? So, I really liked the vibe of this book. It was sort of like Handmaid's Tale and had like a Latin American vibe. And, you know, like Aaron said, it wasn't dystopian future, but it was still dystopian, but it wasn't fantasy. Like it was awesome. I really liked the world building and I liked the quasi-religious justification, not quasi-religious, like definitely religious, but quasi-justification for (laughs) every wealthy young man getting two wives you know, being in this origin story of the sun god and the salt god and something, something, and one wife wasn't enough. He had to have two. Yeah. I I thought that that was a really interesting setup. How about you, Erin? What did you think? I really enjoyed it. I agree with you. I think the way that the religious origins of the culture are described are really interesting because it's so clear that, like, you know, they started off with this mythology And they're not really sticking to it anymore, but, you know, the end result serves a purpose. So it's sort of lingering on in this world in which they live in a way that's kind of unfortunate for a lot of people. They're digging the results, so they just keep with it. Exactly, right. Even though they don't really believe in, in any of the origins at this point. I also really liked the character of Danny. She is initially a little bit predictable, But I thought that the author developed her in a way that um, struck me as really fresh as the book progresses. Yeah, I also really liked Danny. I love how even though like she was still figuring things out and figuring out what she believed and what she wanted to do, she still knew exactly what she was capable of and all of her abilities. Uh, At one point when the uh, boy ingenue, I can't remember his name. What's his name? Soda, yes. At one point when Soda is trying to convince her that she should be a spy because she'd be great at it and he's listing all of these reasons she'd be great at it and she goes i know i'd be great at it that's not the conversation and i really liked that i was like ah danny you're a strong character i'm so glad you mentioned that because that i think was the moment at which i was like oh i like you danny 
Yep, that was that <laughs> moment was my this. buy-in. That moment was my buy-in for sure. Yep. Yeah, I really liked that moment with Danny too. And I liked that we had this binary of Primera and Segunda. So there is like another wife in the household too. And it's Carmen who was the worst girl at school. And who could have ever imagined she would be placed in Danny's household? And we're all like, well, you know, we met like two people at school. So we all saw it coming. <laughs> and worst, worst as in most odious, not bad at being Ooh, a good Segunda. Good word choice. Oh, She's, right. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. She's clearly like good at her segundaing yeah but but like ah she's the worst that kind of worst she's pretty classic mean girl at the start of the novel yes yeah exactly that so one of the things that really informs the character of danielle is that she is undocumented in this world where she's trained to be a primera and it doesn't matter how good she is at everything that she does and how much she surpasses her classmates the fact that her papers are not authentic is like the most terrifying thing in her world that could just take everything that she's worked for away from her. And there's a lot of talk about how the privileged people live on one side of the wall and a lot of like the violence surrounding the wall, which is pretty impossible to ignore as an allegory. And not even an allegory. Allegory is not the right word. It's just the thing that's happening. Like. <laughs> It is like horrifyingly relevant at this particular moment in time. Right. Um, I'm assuming the author had current circumstances or circumstances from a few years ago in mind when she was writing this book, but I don't know if she could have possibly timed it better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, uh, I think that it's really useful for a lot of teachers and students who are looking for ways to like humanize the situation of a wall in like a not super politically charged way. Like, I think right. that there's a lot of schools that would be frustrated if they had their teacher bring in like, oh, this book's about the wall and like they're against whatever. Uh, they're not Americans. Blah, blah, blah. But like, oh, someone will still complain. I mean, <laughs> maybe, but I don't I don't think I don't know. I think this is a good like stealth way to bring it in, you know, like because you've got the refuge of, oh, no, it's just fantasy. Like, yeah, right. it's, yeah. it's I mean, yeah. it's a fictional universe. So you are you're shielded a little bit by that. Right. And I thought that this book brought up a really amazing question that I hadn't considered before in such like an outright way, which is the wall in the society has existed a long time and it's not achieving what the builders anticipated that it would achieve. And so the primary question is like, what happens after the wall? Like, what's the next step? Like, how do things amp up? And I thought that that was where it like truly became scary. Yes. And with that, friends, we'll take our first break. When we come back, we'll share about things we like a latte. Then we'll return to our discussion of we set the dark on fire and dig a little deeper. Hey, friends, are you looking for an easy way to support this podcast? Order our book choices through the affiliate link in our show notes. You'll be supporting our authors and making sure we get a small kickback to keep our show going. Next week, we'll discuss The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. There will be dragons and pirates, and we'll be joined by YA fantasy writer Samaya Dowd. If you'd like to help us keep bringing you great content, order through the link in our show notes. Happy reading! Welcome back, y'all. It's time for Things We Like a Latte. 
Danielle, what's your brew of choice this week? So I started watching One Day at a Time, which is a remake of a show from 1975, um, except that now it is about a Cuban-American family. There are three generations living in the same house. It stars Justina Machado, whom I had known from like Jane the Virgin fame, right? And she's Darcy, and she's kind of this um, two-dimensional, like, great woman but i definitely had not seen her full emotional range until watching one day at a time and i am loving this show so far it also stars rita moreno who is just a treasure and all of the characters are amazing it features a queer character so that's awesome and it's just funny and heartfelt and like earnest at times and just like so well balanced and such an amazing show and i strongly recommend that everyone watch it how about you aaron what's your brew of choice this week so i am going to recommend another podcast because i've decided this is just going to be my how my dare you <laughs> my brew of choice every time it's fine this is another fiction podcast it is called girl in space and it starts out with a girl alone on a spaceship Oh, that's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Actually, the beginning reminds me a little bit of Loneliest Girl in the Universe, which I know you guys have read. But from there, it spins into something very different. And there are amazing Jurassic Park references and science and a very spunky protagonist um who will just charm your ears off it's it's fantastic thanks Erin. that sounds great that does sound great (laughs) except for the part where it sounds terrifying and scary i didn't i didn't mean for that to sound sarcastic (laughs) how about you amanda what's your brew of choice my brew of choice is a tiny little dumb thing that is going to be really dated by the time this episode airs but i don't care because it made me really happy today uh epic reads the twitter feed for HarperCollins ya posted a compilation of the such and such thing as john mulaney quotes but they did it with ya books and it is really enjoyable <laughs> if you like john mulaney and like ya it's a lot of fun just to go through and they post fun things and people who reply to them have posted good stuff so at this point, it's a couple-week-old Twitter thread, but still lots of fun. Epic reads, YA books, as John Mulaney quotes. Sounds great. I know who that is, so I will check that out. <laughs> Danielle, knowing who one of the most popular and famous comedians of the moment is. How does that not sound unlikely to you? Like, I... I, I'm, just, I'm just proud of you. I sh- you should be. You should be. I am. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll return to our discussion of We Set the Dark on Fire. The rest of the show will contain spoilers, so if you're leaving us here, keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'll be back. Welcome back, y'all, to the YA Cafe. We're continuing our discussion on We Set the Dark on Fire by Taylor Mejia. If you haven't read this yet, we want to warn you again that this segment will contain spoilers. Spoilers! spoilers! Yes! <laughs> it's so good! I'm so happy! <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> but no pirates. No pirates. But we do have revolutionaries. 
Were you expecting pirates? No. She's just always expecting pirates, like, on a low <laughs> level. She's just waiting for them to show up. You have to be ready for pirates. At any time. <laughs> All right. So we got Carmen, who is the worst. Or is she? What did y'all think? So one of the things that I was very nervous about when Carmen was, you know, wife number two was like, oh, God, this whole book is going to be Danny doing Danny's thing. And Carmen being like the looming menace and the like consistent threat and antagonistic force. And it's going to be like girl versus girl. And I just not into that. So like this book definitely sold me when it turned out that Carmen was queer and like a good guy. I feel like I knew that they would team up at some point. I was yeah, not with you. totally expecting the love story. And it is really beautifully written. I mean, it's occasionally smalty, but like in a way, <laughs> like this is just too adorable. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm with it. I'm here for it. It's fine. I definitely saw romance coming, possibly because I read a lot of books without uh, queer romance. And so I just like subtexted all over them. Uh, basically, like from the first moment, there were two of the, the two of them were on screen together. I was just yelling, now kiss at the book. <laughs> I was like they're not going to kiss yet. And then they would come on screen again. And I'd say, now kiss. And she'd be like, all right. <laughs> I mean, like Taylor Mejia had a story in Toil and Trouble. And it was the Instagram tarot reader. And there was a queer romance in that. Like she also contributed to All Out, which is an anthology of queer short stories. So like, I guess if I were reading the road signs, I would have known it was coming. But like Amanda, I'm always so hoping for it. So I feel like, you know. When it does happen, I'm like, oh, that's what I wanted all along. I feel like I got it. I got it validated one time really strongly. with, And now I'm just like wide open all the time. Like it's going to happen. So the other character to me who transcended expectations was Mateo in a great way. Because I half expected it to be like, oh, you get to know him and he's not so bad after all. And blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, but it wasn't because Taylor Mejia is smarter than that. And I really liked that he was like const this constant menacing presence. Yes. And it reminded me of what Samaya Dowd, who will be on the podcast next week, said about her book Mirage, which was like, in her book, there is an oppressor. And even though we have our protagonists come into contact with this oppressor, like the oppressor is still an oppressor. It doesn't get better. There's no... Stockholm syndrome -y, like, oh, they were nice all along. No, that person is cruel and they stay cruel. Yes. My favorite thing about Mateo is the scene in which he physically intimidates Danny. And she's so yes. she's so conscious of like the way that he is doing it and how much she hates it. It's really beautifully written um, and speaks very deeply to Something that people tend not to put words to very often. So I really appreciated that. Yes, I agree so much. God, that was that was such a good scene. It was so well written. Yeah, it very was well great. Done. You're right. Yeah. I really have so much respect for Taylor as an author. I feel like, you know, anytime we go into a book, we have the baggage of what all the other stories we've ever read have done to us or like made us expect. And so it's easy for us to be here like, oh, she transcends expectations and all that stuff. But like, I mean, think about like the burden of that. What she's really doing is tearing down like all these things that previous stories have done wrong to us. 
Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. One thing I liked is she leads us initially down the path of Danny and Sota sort of falling for each other. And then she completely flips that trope by having Danny fall for Carmen instead in a way that I thought was really smart. <laughs> yeah, this definitely like, you know, I thought that the story would be one way and then it wasn't. And I love that. Uh, I guess we should have said this like probably at the beginning, but this is book one of two, which we all realized. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) We all realized at the 80 that this was like book one of two. I don't think that's fair to say. This is book one half of one. Okay. (laughs) Did you feel like it didn't read as a complete story? No, I didn't think it read as a complete story. Like, how can you think it read as a complete story? (laughs) Like, the only thing that happened is, like, the protagonist was like, oh, my God, the world is different. And then it was like, just kidding. Now the revolutionaries are everyone. Another thing. Like, we start out with, oh, there's this one person in Lavaz who's approached me. And then by the end of it, she's Lavaz and has been for 27 years. She's Lavaz and has been, like, since before you were born. And it's just like, come on. Like, <laughs> if everybody's in your secret organization, is it a secret organization anymore? <laughs> I really loved, like, 90% of this book. And then the last 10% of this book, I was just like, what? I don't know if y'all had that experience as well. <laughs> well, I don't I don't tend to mind this, but I will say it's one of those books where it's a slow burn until the very end and then there is a lot of action all at once that plays out very quickly. Yeah. So if like that's something that irks you, well, beware, but <laughs> yeah. if you dig that kind of thing, this is definitely the book to check out. <laughs> that is a very, very fair statement. Yeah, I definitely like saw that. So This reminded me of a book published by Melissa Marr, who wrote Wicked Lovely and that whole beautiful series. And then she wrote a book called Carnival of Souls, which has since been rebranded as Carnival of Secrets. And in her author's note, she says, thank you so much to my publisher for letting me publish half a book. (laughs) At least she was upfront about it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the good thing is that, you know, there will be a book two someday, but, oh, update, Melissa Marr also has a book two. Well, now we get to read the second half of that book. But anyway, like Taylor Mejia, <laughs> Taylor Mejia ostensibly already has like a deal for the second book. So, okay. It's probably already written. You know, I mean, yeah, but I feel like the first book in a series still needs to end. Yes. You can't just like cut it off in the middle of the action. Like, I think a really good example of this is, like, Hunger Games, where we end, the games have ended, Katniss has won, but, like, there's still clearly more story to tell. But the story that the book set out to tell of, like, this first Hunger Games was finished. That story was completed. And I just don't think there was a story that was completed in here. It's At least not that, not that I saw. I was literally just about to compare it to book one of the Hunger Games when you said that, but but to make the opposite point, because like, when I think of the end of book one of the Hunger Games, I think of Katniss and Peeta on like very shaky ground and kind of like not knowing where they stand with each other. And that's sort of- Yeah, but who cares about Peeta, Aaron? (laughs) (laughs) I am like team Peeta to the core. (laughs) Anyway- like and that reminded me a little bit of where things stand with Carmen and Danny at the end of of this book. But I do see your point. If you're focused more on 
like the actual story of the revolution, it ends in sort of a an, a very unresolved point. Yes. Like, I don't understand what, like, the plot arc that she was going for was, like, that was ended at this point. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't know what through line it would be that, like, ties the whole story arc to it. I, I, I could speculate about what her goal with that was. Uh, and, I mean, this is purely speculation. But I think she wanted to get to the point where the revolutionaries turned from generally peaceful tactics to violence. And she left it at that turning point so that that could be further explored in book two. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. That's probably not going to be satisfying for everyone. But I was okay with it. What did you think, Danielle, since Aaron and I are just sitting here fighting? (laughs) (laughs) Fighting. (laughs) Barely fighting. Okay, so I liked the way that it ended. We can look at it as being like the arc of Danny and Carmen's relationship, or we can look at it as being like the arc of the revolution. We can also look at it as being like the arc of what Danny's going to achieve in her life. You know, the first plot point is like Danny realizing that it's not just being a primata. You know, the midpoint is like her coming to her realization that she does indeed like want to actively help instead of just do exactly what she's told or whatever. And then kind of the end is like her realizing that like her initial hesitation had consequences and also that, you know, she is the person who went back and forth on like, can I trust Carmen? Can I trust Carmen? And she has to reap what she sowed on that in that Carmen is whisked away. She has to go back in this household and play this role. You know, I think she would have rather had been on the motorcycle, you know, throughout this whole book. Danny was like, I need more action. Like, put me in, put me in, you know. I'm good to go. And everybody was like, no, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So I think like in that sense, it was good. And like in Handmaid's Tale, sometimes, unfortunately, like you have to go back into the oppressive system to burn it down. So I think that the book worked for me in that sense. You're both right. I love you both. (laughs) So diplomatic. (laughs) nauseating (laughs) (laughs) i totally agree though that the if you're looking at it as danny's journey i mean the first three quarters of the book most of the conflict is internal so you're not seeing a lot of heavy plot development other than danny changing her mind and figuring (laughs) things out i like that like i was digging that like i said the first 90 percent of the book i was very on board for really But you were like, what happened? <laughs> I mean, but the the end of The Handmaid's Tale, the end of the book and the end of the first season, the last 10% is really challenging too. Like it's a total upheaval. And she has this space of like, who can I trust? Who can I trust? Do I just have to do this thing? What is happening? And I, I think that that chaos is really kind of important to a dystopian novel. And moreover, Amanda, you love... 1984 and i feel like it's not the last 10 percent, but it's like the second to last 10 percent. so like the 80 to 90 is very chaotic too what how that's a different conversation because i don't know how you could think it's chaotic like it's just a guy locked in a room getting tortured <laughs> so where he gets like his face eaten off by rats <laughs> it is yeah Gross. Classic. <laughs> uh, it's been a long time since i've read that one <laughs> i mean clearly the rats stuck with you though 
overall, this was a really wonderful book. A lot of really well-written parts of it and fantastic emotional descriptions that happened and just a great portrayal of this great world. That's our show for today, friends. Thank you so much for joining us, Erin. Thank you for having me. This was fun, as always. As always. Yeah. You can find out more about Erin and her amazing book, The Art of Escaping, at erinpcallahan.com. You can find us at YA Cafe Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a review. Happy reading!